Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freckled Foodie and Friends, a podcast focused on making healthy living approachable, hosted by yours truly, Cameron Rogers. Hello, people. Happy Friday. It's me, Cameron. I am here with a recent follow on my end and someone that I have loved following. I found her on TikTok and then went over to her Instagram and now have been listening to her podcast. Overall, she is everything that I think our community wants and needs more of and talks about in my DMs constantly. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. Please welcome Victoria Garrick, public speaker and host of RealPod Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited. And I have so many different things. I think we relate on a lot of topics, but mostly it's really exciting for me because a lot of topics I want to chat with you about are ones that the Freckled Foodie community DM me a lot about. And I've tried to do some solo podcast episodes, but it's hard. And I just feel like it's really helpful to have someone else to discuss these topics with. So I'm super excited. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's not easy to find people who are willing to talk about the stuff that we do talk about, especially with food and our relationships with our body, because it's not easy stuff. Um, That's why, you know, I find value in sharing those parts of my story and what I've been through because I know just how many people can relate. Absolutely. And it's so funny because whenever I talk about something that I find so random, I joke that my Instagram stories are just extensions of my therapy sessions because I'll get on and I'm like, this is so weird, but I just can't explain. I'm feeling this way and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of hit add to story without thinking about it. And I realized that it's so random. And then my DMs blow up being like, I feel the exact same way. Thank you for talking about this. And I think everyone's just looking for people to share more about what they're going through because I think we all relate. And I always say like, no matter what emotion you're feeling, you are never alone. It's just a matter of finding people that are outwardly expressing those emotions. And here's the thing, like if you post something like, oh, I am a New York Times bestselling author or I am a gold medalist or whatever it is. It's like people see that cool, good for you. I don't relate. Like, But we all can relate to this universal like suffering, like if we're going to get philosophical, but just this pain and this struggle to, to be happy or to figure out life. And so when you do post things and you do get honest, people can connect with you. And that's not even just being someone on social media, but in our everyday lives with our friends, when you talk to a friend and you open up and say, I'm really struggling with this, they see you. They say, oh, hey, I struggle too. It's just easier to make strong connections when we're talking about things that other people can relate to. 
Absolutely. And I'm also someone that really appreciates people laying their shit out there and being vulnerable. And that to me is like, okay, we connect because I just put it all out there from the very second, like first second of a conversation. And I think that's why I was so drawn and so enjoy your content because similarly, I think you just lay it all out there and I so appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I, even when I do podcasts and stuff, they're like, do we need to send the questions over beforehand? I'm like, no, you can literally ask me whatever you want. I won't be offended. There's nothing I haven't said before. Sometimes it's bad. It's like, I say things and my best friends like Victoria there are a hundred thousand people li- like watching this, and I'm like, uh, I don't really care. <laughs> and no, like, at I the agree. time, it just it feels like you and me, you know. So I'm like, well, let's go for it. <laughs> I totally agree, and it's so funny because I have no filter in general, and I struggle a bit as I've grown an audience because, I mean, I totally respect like boundaries of people I love and my family and stuff. But sometimes I'll share things, and then I realize, oh shit, I have to. I remember having this moment where I'm like, I have to clear some stuff with my husband because it's his life too, and he's way more private than me. And I feel the same way about podcasts. When people have me on their show, they're like, "Do you? Uh, here are the questions." I'm like, I actually don't really care to see them. I'll talk about anything. Like nothing's <laughs> off topic. And on the flip side, I don't never have questions prepared for people, and I think that frustrates some guests. So thank you for being on the show and not caring about that. Um, But I do have the one question that I kick everything off with. How would you define success? I thought about this long and hard because this is a tough (laughs) question. It's so hard. But I think that obviously at the basic level, success is attaining something or achieving a goal that you set out to accomplish. Like That's the baseline definition. But For me personally, I feel like for a long time in my life, I got so caught up with that version of success. Like, where am I going to college? How are my grades? How Mm -hmm. good am I as an athlete? Um, How many followers do I have? Like, like, uh, do the guys think I'm pretty? Like, I I sought out for these materialistic goals that I thought would make me, I don't know, like a better human in some way. Like, I have straight A's and I'm popular and I'm this and. And that pursuit made me so unhappy. And as I've come to really think about that definition and what it means now and and having to kind of rewind and, and wind that back in my life and not be so achievement-oriented, I've realized that to me, being successful is just being a better version of myself every day. Mm-hmm. So just getting a little bit better. And that doesn't mean better in an accomplishment. That could mean I'm better at handling, you know, a sassy comment from someone in my family because like I've been doing that inner work or I'm better at um, being there for my friends because I've really thought about how I like to be supported and I've checked myself on how I can support others. And so for me now, I'm trying to focus more on the little aspects of progress and growth that contribute to just a a better, happier life and version of me, um, no matter what I'm achieving or I'm not achieving, because you're not always going to win. You're not always going to get the best grades. You're not always going to get what you want. And if you're going to cling to those destinations, you'll never be satisfied. So I think my definition now is just being content and um, noticing that growth in myself. I love that response so much. And it's one I really resonate with because for me, 
growing up, I was such a goal achiever. It was like, or goal oriented or whatever it was, but I knew I wanted to do something and then I would do it and then I'd want the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And I think there's a lot of pressure society wise, but also, you know, pressure maybe instituted by your parents or your family, or, you know, once you do something, you feel like you have to live up to it. Like once my freshman year in college, I had a really high GPA fall semester. And I was like, well, I can't ever get worse than that, which is insane because it was like a three nine you can't graduate with that and play sports and have fun and party. That's just not realistic. But for me, I also think that there's so much in growth and I have really spent the last, I guess, like two-ish years working on my inner self. And I am, I think, the most proud of progress I've made there in comparison to any type of business or work goal that I've achieved. Because for me, I think that matters so much more. And I do think that it's a long journey. And exactly what you said, if we focus on it just day by day, changes will happen. You're not like all of a sudden going to wake up and no longer have anxiety or no longer bitch out a family member when they say something to you or, you know, snap back at a mean comment on Instagram. It doesn't happen overnight and so much work goes into it. But I do think there's success in the very small growth periods, even if it's just acknowledging that you responded to one comment differently, that's success. And that's the thing I try to remind people who message me, you know, whether it's about I'm like about food and having an eating disorder or getting better in that area of your life, it's like, you know, their their framework is how do I fix this problem? How do I stop doing ABC? But what about let's st- let's step back and acknowledge like how cool is it that you've you've realized something's not working for you and you actively want to to, to seek help and seek change. Like that right. is success. You don't need to be perfect with food and perfect with your body to be successful. Like it is success to just acknowledge you're not happy and try to learn something new to to make it better. And so constantly trying to remind myself and others to wind it back and look at the little baby steps that are our success in the first place. I totally 100% agree. And I think it's really easy to try and perfect things. Even my therapist jokes that I sometimes try to perfect my anxiety because I say, well, I'm doing all these things. How do I still have anxiety? She's like, Cameron, that's not something you can just perfect. It doesn't work like that. And I think just stepping back and realizing, like you said, you're acknowledging it. You're willing to make the change. That in and of itself is the first step and that's success. Um, And then something I really want to chat about to kick things off with, I get a lot of questions. I played lacrosse in college at Lafayette and I get a lot of DMs being like, can you kind of reflect on your career as a D1 athlete. Can you talk more about it? And I do think obviously there's a chance for me to lean into it, but I I don't know. I feel like it has to be a conversation I'm having with someone else. So I know you very much openly talk about your experience playing volleyball at USC. And I'd love to just hear A, how you got there. Like, did you grow up playing volleyball all the time? I believe you were a walk-on, but just your journey and then kind of how you felt your four years went as an athlete. That's a lot. That is a lot. That is lot. my life story. Um, <laughs> I grew up playing volleyball. I grew up playing multiple sports um, in middle school. I kind of did everything, but I just gravitated towards volleyball the most. That was the one where I was like, mm, I want to make this team next year. Like, I want to practice this mm-hmm. in the summer. And so naturally, I kind of just in high school was like, wow. 
I don't play any other sports. Like it just kind of naturally, I weaned them out and I, that was my sole focus. And then, um, I really wanted to play in the Pac-12, uh, USC specifically was my dream. And I just, I was good. You know, I was on teams that were nationally ranked and we played at the top divisions, but for some reason I was not someone who was like a highly touted recruit. Mm -hmm. And also just with the politics of volleyball, my position wasn't a priority position as a libero, you know, you're recruited last. And so for me, um, you know, that recruiting process was definitely something that was, you had to be really patient, you had to work hard. And then my junior year of high school, I committed as a recruited walk-on. So committed with the agreement that I have a spot on the team, but I'm not receiving scholarship money. And it's very common in volleyball to be a recruited walk-on. I've never heard of that term. Yeah. Yeah. So it, there's two types of walk-ons. There's a true walk-on, like literally you're on campus, you knock on the door, you walk onto the team. Mm -hmm. And then there's a recruited walk-on. So people that commit in high school, but are not receiving scholarship money. Um, and that's, I guess that's technically what I was then as well. Yeah. Yeah. Recruited walk-on. So that is, yeah, that's the term. And you know, it, it's cool to be recruited out of high school and not everyone can, the others, it's a misconception that all these athletes are on full ride scholarships. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. happen <laughs> and there's just, there's not enough scholarships. Um, so yes. And then I get to USC and I mean, it was just a whirlwind of a journey. I went from being someone who was the only one in the freshman class, not on a full ride to starting um, in the first game freshman year and the rest of the games throughout that season. So it just went from, this is my dream. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to, wow, I have all these expectations, all this trust and pressure. I actually have a role on this team and like, am I even good enough? And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where my performance anxiety really kicked in. And I mean, I, I don't even, I could keep going and going. So cut me off, but I know keep going and I'll ask, I mean, I have a lot of questions as you're going to go, but I think this is exactly where I want the conversation to go. What you're about to talk about, because for me, it was the same way we got there freshman year. I mean, we definitely had different college experiences. I went to the smallest D1 school. We, we have a student body of like 2,500. So I'd say that's definitely different than USC. Um, but you know, I started every game since freshman year and there was so much pressure and I'm someone that puts a lot of pressure on myself in addition to pressure I'm feeling from my team or my coach or even my parents, you know, all of that. And there's so much that I now reflect back on and realize, wow, I was so anxious and I just kind of thought it was what everyone felt before a game. And I think now, especially as I'm learning more about my anxiety journey and reflecting a lot, I almost feel like I was rewarded for my anxiety in a lot of phases of my life, if that makes sense. And then it encouraged that behavior because my anxiety led me to always be early to practice. It led me to always be doing the most, to responding to every single thing first, to being like selected as the leader. We had like a leadership committee of my grade and then a solo captain. And I was kind of taken on as, you know, I was almost treated like an extension of the coaching staff when I was a solo captain. And then it put me in really weird positions with my team members. And there was just so much wrapped up in that, that I don't think I noticed any of it until I graduated. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I'm curious for you, because you said that you noticed this is kind of when your performance anxiety kicked in. 
when you were going through the four years as an athlete, were you aware? And I think I know the answer based on TikTok videos and Instagrams and podcasts I've listened to, but for everyone who hasn't done that of your content, who hasn't consumed your content, were you feeling throughout those four years as if you weren't happy and you were just kind of showing up on the court, I guess is the correct term for volleyball, not the field? Um, Or were you kind of so wrapped up in it that you weren't sure how you were actually feeling? Well, I was very... Let's see. A lot changed for me over the, between who I was as a freshman and who I was as a senior. Um, my freshman year was when I dealt with the performance anxiety. Um, I had no idea what was going on. I just thought um, I'm constantly unable to go to sleep at night. I have 10 alarms. Why am I crying and shaking before a game? Like It was like those moments mm-hmm. where you're like laughing through your tears like, this is so weird. Why am I about to cry? Yeah. Like, And you're just like, what is happening to me? I'm like, am I on my period? Oh, wait, it's been like five months of this. Mm-hmm. So my performance anxiety was not something I knew um, because just as athletes, we are told to be strong and just figure it out and get it done. And so for yeah. me having those feelings, I just thought – everyone must go through this, but no one complains about it like you do. Like no one says anything like, so you're not going to be the one. Like you're going to just go out there and figure it out too. So I didn't say anything. And then because I didn't deal with that, um, I came back my sophomore year very depressed. Um, I just Mm -hmm. hit a wall. I had been so hyperactive and overthinking and all of that anxiety had lived in me for so long that I just got to a state of numbness and I was really, really at a low place and I've never been that low. Um, and I never had experienced that before because I was always bubbly and outgoing. So for me in that place in my life, I just, I felt like I had nothing left to give and going through that, I was first caught off guard and just couldn't believe how like depression hits you like a like a hundred tons of cement that's yep. invisible has just been poured onto your back and you just can't take it off. And it was something I could snap out of or go paint my nails and have a girl's day over and be done with. Like it was there mm-hmm. and something was wrong with me. And in going through that, you know, I had a lot of hesitancy to reach out to therapists and get help because, you know, that was part of the stigma. I didn't want to do that. But long story short, like seriously, such a long story short, I ended up, um, I did go see a therapist. I did start working on myself. And then I started to realize, oh my gosh, this is such a problem. Like there are so many athletes who are feeling the same pressure, stress, and sadness and are quiet about it. And we don't talk about it. And that's kind of what led me to deliver my TED Talk sophomore Mm -hmm. year of college. And then that's kind of when my advocacy work started. So my junior year, I still wasn't the best. Like I I was better in the sense that I was able to understand what I was going through and I was working on it, but it was still really difficult for me. Um, I ended up taking a mental health leave from the team in the spring. So I took like two or three months off. And then I came back my senior year because I just had this, I felt like I got a lot better on my leave and over summer. And I just was like, I can do this. It's one more semester of my favorite sport in the world. Like I have the tools necessary. It's my senior year. 
I'm going to make it through. And so my senior year was probably the best I've ever been mentally. I still had anxiety. You know, I still dealt with things, but it was, it was the best year for me um, of the four. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that because I know it's very personal and kind of, I know we touched on this on the beginning and no matter how open we are and how often we share this, I do think it should be acknowledged and thanked because it does take a lot to put yourself out there and express things like that. So thank you. And also, I think it's something that so many people feel and just people aren't talking about. And when I think back to college sports and, you know, because I went to a small school, most of my friends were either on my team or other teams. And I was in a sorority. So obviously I had a few friends that didn't play sports, but majority of the people I spent time with were athletes. And I think it's so normalized in a way, the absurdity of what we're doing. If you look at a D1 <laughs> athlete schedule, so like what in the hell, how is that allowed? And I know obviously there are rules and regulations and all that, but when you think about the fact that not only you're not getting paid, but also, I mean, for me, our team didn't have scholarship money until the year after we graduated. And because we were a small school, a lot of the female sports didn't and male sports, but whatever. And it's just so wild to think back on college days where we would wake up and go to a 6 a.m. lift and then go to classes and then have practice and then have a team dinner and then maybe have a one-on-one in the middle of the day or like a two-on-one or whatever you want to call it. And somehow you're also supposed to do all the schoolwork and do well in school so that you can eventually, I mean, at lacrosse, we're not playing professionally as a female. So eventually we need a job after college and you need to have a decent GPA on your resume. And there's just so much that's expected without any type of acknowledgement. And I don't know if every athlete feels that way, but I do think it's really wild to think back on the amount of hours and intensity that you go through while you're also in like formative years of your life and you're supposed to be experiencing college and you're supposed to be educating and learning and going to class and being a, you know, not straight A, but everyone's like, oh, I need to have good grades. It's just so insane to me when I think back on it. And you're right in saying we've just normalized it because you get there and they lay out the schedule and no one chirps and everyone's just doing it. And so you're like, okay, I got to do it too. Right. And the second anyone mentions like, hey, aren't we kind of over hours on like what's allowed? It's, well, you know, individuals aren't really required. All of a sudden, there are all these loopholes. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's really, really interesting for me to reflect on and just how so many people felt so much pressure and so much anxiety over it and so intense about all of it. But we all just kind of go with the flow and don't acknowledge those emotions because it's just expected of us. And Another question I have for you is throughout all of this and the anxiety over performing and said depression, were you also struggling with body image? Because I know you talk about that a lot. Or was that something that kind of came after college? Because that was my experience. It just kind of flew out of nowhere (laughs) post-college. No, mine happened. It was happening freshman year. It was it was happening in high school mildly. Mm -hmm. I just like like I said, it's so funny when I talk about um my experiences. It's just I feel like I'm hitting people with a triple whammy. I'm like, so I performance anxiety, then the binge eating kicked (laughs) in, then I was depressed. And I'm like, it's just so much. So sometimes I don't even know like what to talk about. Um, But so for me it was basically in high school, 
I was obsessed with looking skinny. I mean, mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Victoria's Secret models. Like I knew every measurement of Candace Swanepoel, Miranda Kerr. I, I could name them all. Adriana Lima, like obsessed. And wow. um, this was before Instagram. So like I was on straight up on the Victoria's Secret application, looking at these models, like mm-hmm. height, waistline, whatever it was, um, just obsessed with their beauty. And at the time, like, I didn't think this was weird. I just thought it was like a joke to me. I just thought, you know, I know the models. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was cautious of how my body looked. I never, like, so I dieted. I definitely went on, tried different things to lose weight. Um, I never developed any sort of disordered eating to a point where like I would be passing a clinical threshold for an eating disorder. Nothing in high school that was too severe, but I definitely was already a disordered eater. Um, And then I got to college and my whole lifestyle and regimen of uh, working out and eating changed Mm -hmm. because I was now working out for three to four hours a day, like at a very high level. As we said, insane. Yes. And (laughs) and now I'm way hungrier and I'm uh, needing more food. And the food around me is college food. It's what they're Mm -hmm. serving me. It's not – you know, I'm not coming home to my mom or anyone in my family making something healthy or making something that I was used to eating. And so it was just a huge change because as someone who used to count their calories all the time, I knew the number that I used to eat. And now it was like that number was my breakfast because I had a four-hour practice and then I had class. Like I needed like three times the food and I actively thought about, oh my gosh, the calories I'm consuming, the amount of food I'm consuming. And I was – and then I started to gain weight and um, gain muscle. You know, my whole body was changing given the fact that I was now training with like Olympic – athletes who are tra- who are training us to become national champions like obviously my body's changing but I didn't think that that was a good thing I didn't want to grow out of my high school jeans I didn't want to see the number on the scale go up um I didn't want to be more muscular I thought that like the Victoria's Secret models I needed to be very thin and skinny mm-hmm. and so any bulk or getting bigger was something I did not want at all and as this was happening um the performance anxiety was happening and the way that I coped with all of my anxiety around volleyball in school and my fears of messing up and failing um, was with food. And I coped by eating. And it just started as, oh, I'm going to count my calories and go on a diet so I can lose weight. And then at night it was like, okay, well, uh, I kind of want pizza. Mm, I kind of want cereal. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I broke my diet. We're going to start again tomorrow. And then that happened again and again and again until the restriction each day got way worse and more intense to like barely eating. And then the the quote unquote break my diet at night got so intense that that became binging. Mm -hmm. And that's when that cycle developed for me. And food was just my escape. It was just at night by myself, like verge of tears, hate my body, so stressed, so unhappy. Let me eat everything in sight because that makes me feel in control. That makes me feel comforted. Um, you know, that's forbidden and I, and I want it. And I started to develop a binge eating disorder. And this was rough for me. Like I, I, I just felt – 
and it was weird because with the anxiety and depression, like we've talked about already, Cameron, we're both really open with what we've gone through. The mm-hmm. binge eating for me was like the third final thing I ever opened up about, like on Instagram or to the public. Um, like my first, I remember like having a, a kind of a significant platform on Instagram for a while and like never talking about binging because I just thought it was so disgusting and shameful. And I never wanted to say that that was me. Um, and I don't know how that that changed for me, but obviously it has now. But um, yeah, that's kind of how my eating issues developed. And it was something I I similarly – like I feel like my sophomore, junior year, I just had this whole work on Victoria and let's fix all these things mm-hmm. and, and make things better. And that's who I am as a person. Like I – and to any of the athletes listening who are struggling, it's like – if you're an athlete, especially at a high level, like you know how to get things done, you know how to work hard, you know how to take direction, you know how to perform. So all of those things can be channeled to recovery in some way. I'm going to go to therapy. Yeah. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be vulnerable in this moment and really say what's on my heart because that's the only way through. I am mm-hmm. going to actively journal and work on compassion. And so for me, it was like, how can I do all these things? Because I I would rather have a healthy relationship with my body and food than feel this way every day. And for me, developing the practice of intuitive eating was what truly changed my whole approach to eating. And um, I'm an intuitive eater. Like I literally breathe mm-hmm. and preach and die by that method. And in terms of just body image in general – that was something that came with time, like accepting the imperfections on my body and not being, not having, uh, what do you call them? Like washer abs and right. uh, low body fat and I don't weigh myself and I just had to make a lot of changes. And let me know if you have any questions about this chunk I just threw at you because there's so much to dive <laughs> into in, in the in the story, but that's the, um, that's overall the summary of my relationship with food and my body. Well, thank you for sharing. And I do have a few questions. I'm wondering, I know you said that binging was the last thing that you've kind of opened up about. And while it was happening, were you talking to people about it, either friends or family, or was it totally still your own secret? It was totally my own secret. I just Mm -hmm. felt like I couldn't explain it to someone. Um, Also, the word binge is just something that we use in society. Like I binge watch Netflix, I binge TV shows. And so, um, for me knowing what my binge was, Mm -hmm. I just didn't even know how to put it to words to someone. And I didn't want to even do that because it would like bring me to tears and I didn't think they'd understand. Um, it was a huge secret to me. And, um, I think, my best friend, my best friend, uh, we were roommates in the same room. And so she knew about everything going on with um, my anxiety and my depression. And um, I I don't really remember if I was super open with her about the binging. Um, but I, I, rem- I vividly remember the first time I told my mom about it was the first time I can remember telling someone. Mm-hmm. And I just called her immediately after a binge one time, just hysterically crying and kind of tried to explain to her through my tears. 
I just ate everything. Um, like I literally just ate everything and her trying to say it's okay. Like it's calm down, like mm-hmm. take, take a deep breath, you know, just calm me down. And, um, my mom ended up getting me a book called Breaking Free from Emotional Eating. It's by Janine Roth. And she gave me the book uh, the next time I saw her. And she was just like, this is a best-selling book. Like she, she said she read it one time. I doubt it. But she just wanted to help <laughs> in some way. And I remember just opening this book and I think I read the whole thing in a day and my, my mm-hmm. whole, I just had this life epiphany of food and our relationship with food and how crazy it is that we grow up in a society that tells us, literally tells us when to eat, what to eat, how to eat, how not to eat, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what time to eat, how much to eat, right. all these rules. And no one ever just says like, what do you want to eat? Are you even hungry? How does this mm-hmm. food make you feel? Like that's not a question. And I saw a quote recently that said, if diet culture didn't exist, intuitive eating would just be called eating. And that is the straight right. truth. Um, Absolutely. And so, you eat when you're hungry and you stop when you're full. Yeah, exactly. I know. It sounds so easy. And so when I just learned this, I just thought, oh my gosh, like how have I, how is, how have I never connected myself and my mind to my own body. We treat mm-hmm. our bodies like accessories, ornaments, things that we want to shift, change, make better. And we're just like heads floating above our bodies. Like our bodies are a part of us. And yeah. you can't just not make a body or pick a body out like this is where Barbie dolls in fifth grade. I mean, your body's your body and you can't make it look like anyone else's. And so I just started to get exposed to a new way of viewing food and my body that I had never been exposed to before. And I really vibed and clicked with the teachings and it, it really, it really changed me and then sent me on this journey of recovery. Well, I'm so happy that you were able to open up about that and that your mom shared that with you and that you've gone through this journey and I'll definitely link that book in the show notes. And I think something you said is so true where you were just so embarrassed to share because you, not only had you not wrapped your mind around it, but you also felt alone, I think. And in that, then keeping it to yourself, it just furthers that loneliness. And I can reflect back on a period of my life where I wouldn't have been able to say it in the moment, but I now reflect back definitely was on the verge of depressed. And I remember coming home from work and it was when I lived alone. And obviously my now husband, Joe at the time was my boyfriend and he would come over a few nights, but not like that often during the work week. And I just remember crying hysterically in my apartment for no reason. Like I would just walk in the door. I'd be totally fine. I'd be cooking dinner and I would start hysterically crying. And I was so embarrassed to tell anyone because if you looked at me from the outside, I had this perfect life. I had gone to a great school. I have an amazing family. I was still with my high school boyfriend and we were probably going to get married, which we did. And I had a great job. And you know, why would I ever, I was in an amazing apartment. Like how could I, with all of that, be depressed? How could I be sad? Who would even understand? And I think the loneliness is what made it so much harder because I was just so afraid and embarrassed and just wrapped up in my own head. It's like a hamster wheel and you can't get out. 
And I think for anyone listening who's struggling with any of the things we're talking about, obviously we're not trained professionals, but from my experience, I can say the number one thing that's helped is just sharing what you're feeling with someone, whether it's a therapist, a parent, a sibling, a best friend, a significant other, getting just letting shit out of your mouth so that you're not alone because that cycle of being in your own head when you're struggling with these things is it's really quite frankly scary because you can go down very deep and dark holes and when you're alone there's it's very difficult to get out a hundred percent. And I've been doing a lot of work on the voice inside my head recently. Have you done any ego work or learned about the ego? No. Okay. Like, You're I, prepared I have to have a voice your inside of my head. Prepare to have your <laughs> life and mind blown. Um, I have just been obsessed with this account. Um, it's called The Holistic Psychologist by Dr. Nicola Perra, and she's a psychologist. Um, and she discusses she has this approach to healing where you identify your ego. And so when we think of ego, we think of, oh, ego is just you're cocky and you're full of yourself. That is the way society has kind of conventionally described it um, at a base level. But the ego is so much more than that. It's insecurity, it's fear, and it is the voice inside of our head. And mm-hmm. we are not the voice inside of our head. We're actually – we're the person that hears the voice and is aware of the voice. And right. so – in doing all this work, and this is stuff like I wish I did in college. I just think I would have had such a different experience if I was able to identify my ego because a lot of the times our anxious thoughts are our ego, trying to 100%. feel insecure or um, unworthy or predict what's going to happen before it happens. And so doing this ego work and working on that side of myself has been so helpful. So if that resonates with anyone who can relate to what Cameron said about her anxious voice and this, definitely check out The Holistic Psychologist. I mean, shameless plug. I'm up, This is how obsessed I am with this girl's account. <laughs> no, I love it. I'll post it in the show notes. And I actually just – I think I followed her recently, but it's like one of those times where I follow someone and then they're not on my feed, so I forget. So I need to go I like truly, and comment on yes. her stuff to get her I, on my feed. I hate when that happens. I like. I will go through who I'm following and be like, I never see her posts. I know. See them. Someone's like, Do you know who this person is? And I was like, No, I have no idea. And then I look and I'm following them. How is that possible? Um, But I think what you just said, and obviously I want to do more research into her and her work. But my ego is something that I I've mentioned it a lot in the sense of I worked in sales and trading for five years, and even though I wanted to do freckled foodie and all this content full time it was really my ego that kept me from doing it because I loved saying to people, I work at JP Morgan in sales and trading. Just immediately, it was like I had this badge of honor and people respected me and my ego kept me there and the money and that played into my ego. And I acknowledge that, but I think it's really interesting in current time, that was two years ago, acknowledging when my ego is coming to the table. And I've been realizing it a lot lately in terms of body image, because kind of what we were just talking about, and I know you said that you struggled with body image throughout college. For me, I never once really thought about my body until I graduated college. In high school, I mean, I'm, I was naturally just thin because I was playing so many sports and I had a really fast metabolism, I guess. And in college, you're just, you're working out so much. You're not thinking about exercising because you're exercising. And I've always loved food and I was always blessed with the ability to kind of eat whatever I wanted and it wouldn't really affect me because I was playing so many sports and was keeping so active. And 
it was really after college when all of a sudden I wasn't working out every day. If I was, I was maybe doing 45 minutes, not three to four hours. And all of a sudden I was responsible for figuring out, you know, with food, I was going to all these restaurants in New York. I was drinking a lot and there were so many changes happening in my body and I kind of noticed it. And then the control freak in me took over and the obsessive in me took over and I became obsessed with running. And that was something I'm big. I've never been someone who weighed myself, but I love numbers. And so running for me was a tangible asset. I knew exactly how far I ran that day, how fast I ran, and I wanted to beat it the next day. That was the inner athlete in me and the competitor. And then I noticed I have this vivid memory. I used to work out at Equinox and they have those scales in the locker rooms and every woman was weighing themselves. And I started to think, is this what people do? Am I just dumb. I didn't know every woman weighed themselves every day. And so I made the classic mistake of getting on the scale and then (laughs) classic mistake, classic, and then focusing on that number. And I remember there was a small period where, not small, but there was a period where I really was overthinking what I was eating. I was like, I would be so anxious if I couldn't get to the gym or work out, if I couldn't get my miles in. And I remember weighing myself one day and the number kept going down and down and down. And I remember feeling a level of joy seeing a lower number. And I realized this is a fucking problem. Get off the scale. And while I noticed that and you know, then kind of cut back on those behaviors, which I'm proud of myself for, I've obviously gained weight since that moment of like my lowest weight. And I think for me, it's been a very interesting journey because I constantly am comparing myself to that version, which is so fucked up. But the ego in me is caught in that moment where I looked that way. And I've always been this person with, you know, I've always been thin and fit and great abs and that kind of stupid shit that doesn't matter. But my ego can sometimes be stuck there. And while I'm so much happier now and I've let go of restrictions and I just kind of do what I feel like and I love my body sometimes I'll see something or someone and it'll hit my ego of like, oh my God, I used to be like that and now I'm not. And I'm like, no, Cameron, we don't like that version of ourselves. Like we're all different. And I think that's what we all struggle with of comparing ourselves. And I do think that's where the ego comes to play because we live in such a world where things are thrown at us constantly of these highlight reels on social media. And it's so easy to sit back and be like, wait a second, that shiny object, I want that. Whether it's a look or a workout or a meal or whatever you want to call it. And I think our ego has a hard time realizing that A, that's not always reality, what we're seeing, but B, it might not necessarily be the best thing for us. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. (laughs) It's so funny to just really take a step back and think about it. And kind of like you said, I wish this was something I had done at a younger age because while I'm really proud of where I am today, I realize there's still more growth to be had. And I look back at myself four years ago and I just want to hug her and tell her it doesn't matter. This shit does not matter. And you're so much more than your body. Right, right. I mean, there's so many things you wish you could go back and say, but everything that we've been through and have been through is why we are where we are today. And so I really try to have no regrets. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you only knew you did the best you could in that moment with what you knew. And that's all that you could have done. 
And so, you know, I to anyone else who is thinking, how could I have let this get out of hand or this happen? It's it is where it is why you're here now. And mm-hmm. I would never go back and change my volleyball experience because my struggle with mental health, like that lowest point in my life, has allowed me to be where I am today and pursue something that gives me so much purpose in life. And I have no idea what I would be doing if that didn't happen to me. I totally agree. And I think you show incredible reflection and growth and vulnerability and sharing all of this. And I'm curious what your favorite characteristic about yourself is. Hmm. <laughs> Cringe talking about something I like about myself. Um, let's Come see. on. I, you got to strengthen the confidence muscle. All, I would all say, the women. I would say my favorite characteristic about myself is that if I want to do something, I do it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't – like if I have a goal – I will do whatever I can do to make that thing happen. Um, I take things into my own hands. I'm constantly going above and beyond in, in areas that I want to su- go back to success, succeed in life to to get to the the place I want to be. And that's not in a material way. Like that is, like I said, with with even the inner journey. Like if I want to get better or I want to figure something out, like I will go to therapy. I will work on myself. I will I will do it. And I notice that everyone's different. Some people like to let the pieces fall into place where they may. I like to grab the pieces out of the sky and glue them together where I want them to go. Mm -hmm. And so that is something I do like about myself. I think it is a reason I've been able to um, kind of create what I I have so far. And um, I, I just think that is something I really like about, yeah, I guess who I am is that I I don't ask for favors. I don't wait around. Um, I just make make my path. I love that. And I really respect that. And I definitely resonate with it as well. Um, and I'm also curious along this journey, what do you think the hardest thing has been about sharing everything that you share and putting yourself out there? The hardest thing for me that I've really um, been not dealing with recently because with the coronavirus, I haven't been public speaking. But this past fall, I went on a big, actually, you know, it was this past, well, it was this fall, but most recently in the month of February, I spoke at like 11 different universities in four weeks. And a lot of those schools were multiple keynotes. So it wasn't just one and done. It was to the coaches, the student athletes, to a sorority. So it was like two to three a day. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like similar to what you said in the beginning, which made me smile on my end, but you couldn't see is when you (laughs) said, you know, thank you for opening up because we do it so much that it becomes kind of a given, but we forget like how hard it is. And I even forget how hard it is. And for me, the hardest part has been reliving those really hard parts of my life Mm -hmm. every day. And, you know, especially the depression, like, Everything is tough for me to think about, but really if I'm thinking about what went on there, especially when I'm when I'm talking in public speaking, I am diving into that that part of my life and it's not easy and it's something that people maybe bring up in therapy a few times, work through and then they don't touch again and I right. touch it every single time I'm in front of a crowd and it's not easy. And so that to me has been something that's hard, but I know that in in doing that and going there I have the opportunity to 
to impact someone else and and help them on their journey. And and that is worth it for me, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it's not hard to do. Absolutely. And I think as a consumer, we completely forget about that because we're used to just receiving content and receiving these types of things from public figures, call it whatever you want to call us. And it there's so much that goes in emotionally on the back end that I think is overlooked, whether we even acknowledge it or not. Sometimes I even forget. And then I realize I'm in a funk later that day. I'm like, wow, I dove deep on my Instagram stories today. And I kind of like ruffled up a lot of stuff that I had been just kind of forgetting about. And I do think as a consumer, maybe we take a step for everyone listening of acknowledging that when you're watching someone's stories or you're listening to someone's podcast or even just you know following up with a speaker you hear of thanking them for that because while it may come naturally and seem easy there's still a lot going on behind the scenes and i know personally i get very emotional over it's really interesting random topics when i talk about them every once in a while i'll just like start crying and i mean it shows it it does trigger a lot when you relive these things and it shouldn't go unnoticed. So I definitely agree that it is a tough struggle with the work we're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And kudos to you as well for, you know, veering outside the normal path that felt comfortable for you and, and making an impact and pursuing what you love. I really admire that. That's something that I admire the most in others is just pursuing your dream and your passion and what makes you happy. And nothing, you know, hurts the heart more than seeing people just keep going with a pattern that doesn't bring them joy every day. So it's really Mm -hmm. awesome what you've done too. Thank you so much. And then to close, I kind of bring it back to food, but I ask how, like, what are the three ways to your heart through food? And it can be so specific or it can be extremely general. It's really what makes you so happy. I <laughs> I would have to say, well, my two favorite foods, Nutella is obviously a way to Love. my heart through food, obsessed. On a crepe, we can have it on bacon, waffles, car- apples, whatever it is. A good Nutella crepe is everything. It is everything. Um, and then I would say Italian, like pasta, mm-hmm. bread, butter. That is a way to my heart through food. And then the third one, I wanted to do kind of more like an experience and When I think about my favorite times eating, it's when I'm like with my best friend, my boyfriend, someone I love, and and we both like at the same time decide like let's go get In and Out or let's go get Mm Chick Fil A, and like you are you are spot on the same wavelength of like that would be so fun right now. Like what a great idea! We're both craving the same thing, and we're having such a fun day together. That moment of going to get like a fast food or something like that with someone that you love, it just makes me so happy. It happened the other night with my boyfriend. I was like, I kind of went in and out. And he was like, oh my God, me too. And I picked him up. We went Taylor Swift on the way there, burgers (laughs) in the car. It was, it was magical. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And there's nothing that frustrates me more on those nights where we're both like, I know I'm hungry, but I don't know what we want. And then we like spend an hour trying to figure out what we're getting. So the nights where it just clicks and we're on the same page is glorious. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, you're, I'm happier knowing the person I'm with is enjoying the food as well. Yes, 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 yes. So for everyone listening, where is the best place to find and follow you? 
Oh my gosh, that is such poor timing. Did you just hear me like kind of burp? Oh, <laughs> no one wants worry. to follow me now. <laughs> I burp okay. I'm on here. <laughs> I um that is so funny. I literally don't know where that came from. Okay, you can follow me on Instagram it. at Victoria Garrick. And then also I do have a podcast called Real Pod. And then um, yes, TikTok where Cameron yeah. and I found each other first. It's Victoria Garrick 4. It'll all be in the show notes, but Everyone should definitely go follow Victoria. She is someone that you need on your feed in this world of comparison and not always showing the reality. She is a breath of fresh air. So thank you so much for being on here. I so appreciate it. Guys, I hope you like this episode as much as I do. If you do, please leave a rate and or review. Go over to listen to her episodes and do the same thing. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Freckled Foodie and Friends. I thoroughly hope you enjoyed it. If you could be so kind, I would greatly appreciate a rate and or review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. Currently, this one's available on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please subscribe to make sure you're up to date with new episodes coming at you every Friday morning. If once a week isn't enough of me, please follow along on my most active social channel, Instagram. Find me, my unedited videos, recipes, random rants, and info for all my other social channels on there, at Freckled Foodie. 